We're continuing our study in uh, the letter to Galatians. We're nearing the end of that study. We'll go this week and next week, and uh, then we'll be beginning, be beginning a new series, one which I'll tell you about some other time, a little later. Um, but uh, last week, well, two weeks ago, the last time we looked at this, we talked about that famous passage that Paul wrote on the fruit of the Spirit, you know, where he details... Uh, the work that Jesus is up, that the Holy Spirit is up to uh, in the lives and the hearts of all who belong to Jesus, all who seek to follow Jesus. And he gives us that, gives us that lovely list of love, joy, peace, and patience, and kindness, and goodness, faithfulness, gentleness is a word that we need to remember as we lean into this passage, and self-control. And those things are promised to you. That's the Holy Spirit's commitment to you to work those things out in your heart and in your life. And they're also held out to us as something that we aspire to as, as believers uh, who, who are seeking to follow Christ. But there's one thing that just bears mentioning about that. And it's simply this. That those things are a lot easier to talk about in concept than they are in our everyday, Right? Like, it's a, it's a lot easier to discuss, have a conversation with each other about love itself than it is to actually apply the work of love in a particular circumstance. That can get very hard. And so what we have here in this passage is Paul following up that text of the fruit of the Spirit and showing us how it might apply in a very real situation. And so just a heads up, this one penetrates a little bit. This is... This is a sensitive text where he's speaking into a, a very sensitive situation. And it, and it may be a particular situation he's thinking of in that church, but it's not foreign to any church. And so this is what we're leaning into is um, the application of the fruit of the Spirit in our times of greatest need and possibly during times of our greatest vulnerabilities. Let's look together. I'm going to read. This is Galatians chapter 5, verse 26. And I'll read through 6, verse 5. Hear the word of the Lord. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. For each will have to bear his own load. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you are the burden bearer. Uh, You are the one who comes alongside your people with love and gentleness and kindness and all of the fruit of the Spirit's work that we celebrate. And so I pray that as we lean into this text and think about these things, that you would turn us into the community of burden bearers that you call us to. That you would protect us from being people of shallow relationships with each other, but that you would give us an increasing willingness to lean into this call. Help us as we hear from you this morning. I pray that you would help me to 
Be gentle with these friends as you are gentle with us, to love them well, and to honor you, our King, with the words that I say. pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So years ago, I found myself in conversation with a guy. Uh, This is one of those conversations you don't get to have very often because this particular person was a Secret Service agent. Super fun uh, to hear about, you know, just the work that they do and the challenges they face. I promise you he didn't share anything with me that would have been inappropriate um, unless his rule was I can't share anything confidential with you until it hits CNN. As soon as it hits CNN, I can tell you all about it. So we had a really fun conversation where I learned a lot about um, just what his work looked like. Uh, But a significant piece of this conversation uh, revolved around how he was particularly discouraged uh, about his life and the work that he was up to, that he was facing particular challenges. Uh, he told me he had a young family and that his work was requiring him to travel a lot and be away from his young family, and he could feel the effects of that. And he also detailed for me ways that unrest in the country was making his life as a Secret Service agent more challenging, that the challenges that he faced at work were just compounding because there was just so much more to attend to, and it was coming to a place where it was really affecting who he was when he went home. And uh, I know none of us know what that feels like to bring our work home with us, but that was something that was particularly difficult uh, for him. And he told me he, was, he knew he was in a really interesting place when he began, when he, when he flew into his home city one evening and he was looking out the window of the plane and saw the guy with the wands waving the plane into its place to offload. And he began, he realized he was jealous of that person because he thought that person gets to go home at a predictable time. And faces predictable challenges at work. And is certainly unencumbered by the things that a normal Secret Service agent has to deal with. You know, I think it's really easy for us, almost intuitive for us, to look at each other. And draw lines of comparison. And wonder how we stack up with the people around us. Because I remember hearing that and I just thought, this guy is capable, he's articulate, he's fit, he's got a lovely family, he has excelled in his career, and he's jealous of somebody who waves planes in at the tarmac. And I just wonder if 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 that person had overheard that conversation, if he might have switched places. In some ways, what we do is we construct ladders, and we try and figure out where we are, what rung we're on compared to the other people around us, and we think in categories of like vocational excellence or, or our material possession or our gifts or our athleticism, and we just try and figure out where we are in relationship to the people around us, and we're trying to climb that ladder. That ladder can be a real burden. We, we can become slaves to climbing that ladder. And it's into that kind of intuitive movement of our own hearts that Paul's first words in verse 26 speak profoundly to us. He says, do not become conceited, provoking one another or envying one another. 
And Paul is saying that that ladder has no place in our life together. That we all belong on the same playing field and that we all have burdens that we bury, that, sorry, that we carry. That we all have a load to carry is what, what, what he says at the end of this passage. And so what does it look like? What does it look like for us to draw near each other without provocation, without envy, seeking to bear one another's burdens? Because there are times when the burdens of our lives are too heavy for us to carry alone. In this passage, I can't can't cover everything that Paul lays out here, but I'm going to say he gives us three things. I'm going to say he talks to us about our awareness of each other and of ourselves. He talks about our approach, and he talks about our aim. Forgive me for the alliteration. I just couldn't help it. So our awareness, our approach, and our aim. First, our awareness. This passage is littered with ways that Paul calls us to cultivate an awareness of each other and ourselves. First, he talks to us about our awareness of each other. If you notice, the very first word in verse 1 is the word brothers. He calls them brothers. Now, that's a very generic term. He's not only writing to the men of that church. That A lot of translations use brothers and sisters for that. But what he's doing with that is he's simply calling us into a very familiar relationship with each other. One where we would understand each other as siblings, even. A familial relationship with each other. And then he says this. If anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. We're going to spend a lot of time on that verse. The instructions here are pretty clear. But what this verse presumes about our relationships with each other, I think, is profound. Because what it says is that if we're overtaken, uh, that we would be so aware with each, of each other, so into each other's lives, that when we're caught by sin, someone might know it. That's what it presumes. That there would be people in our lives, just naturally, because of the fellowship that we have with each other, that we, would be able, that we might even be able to see that in each other. And so what he's, the word caught here, if anyone is caught in a transgression or caught in a sin, isn't permission for us to become sin police, like we're not running around looking to catch each other in sin. This is actually in reference to what sin does to us. Overtaken might be a word that could be used here. If anyone is overtaken by a sin, a sin habit or a besetting sin might be something that we, you know, that, that we call it. And so what he's describing for us is a scenario where it seems like sin has gotten the upper hand in somebody's life. And the verse actually presumes that we might be able to see that in each other, if and when that could happen. And so he's calling us to look out for each other with an, a, a, like a deep and abiding awareness of each other, but he also calls us to an awareness of our own selves, doesn't he? And do you see this? He says, keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. It's almost as if to say, hey, whatever this sin that somebody might be caught in a certain transgression might be, that none of us are actually beyond the reach of temptation. This is a call to a humble self-awareness in this passage. And he drives the point further in verse 3 when he says, for if anyone thinks 
he is something, when he is nothing, he deceives himself. And that's what conceit does, right? It's a, it lies to us about who we are. And so the point that he's making is that when we gather around each other, looking to help, we come to, toward each other, clothed in a humility that said, this just could just as well have been me. Without judgment, without provocation, and without envy, we draw near to each other and bear each other's burdens. Now, when we talk about this, um, I just want to give a moment to say that we are talking about a very sensitive and difficult situation, right? When somebody's caught in a sin, uh, it's very hard for us to talk about, and being exposed in sin can just feel terrifying, can it? But we have to come to a place where we begin, can begin to see it as one of God's mercies to us. Psalm 130 calls, uh, calls it secret sins and misdeeds dark. When sin has, has uh, space to run in, in secret in our own hearts. I've got a friend who likes to say, we're only as, as sick as our secrets. And here's the thing. As long as sin and our own hearts remain in secret, they, they, they are allowed to grow with power. Because as, as long as that's the case, uh, it's so much easier for us to believe the lies that come with it. Lies like nobody else would understand. Or it's not that bad. Or I can handle it. I can make myself stronger. I can overcome this myself. But the more we understand the depth of the sin in our hearts and the power it has to harm ourselves and those around us, the more we will begin to see that it's good that God seeks to root these things out of us and he breaks the power of shame by drawing us into relationship with each other where sin might become known. This is what James 5 is getting at when it says that we should confess our sins to each other and pray for each other that we might be healed. This is one of the essential responsibilities that we have for each other. And it's fundamentally, it's hard. But it's good. Now look, I'm not telling you that we're about to have a prayer and share time here at Red Mountain Church, okay? Don't be afraid. That's not, that's not what's happening. And, and I'm also not saying that we're all entitled to know each other's stuff, okay? But I just want to ask you this question. Are these people in your life... I mean, do, you, do you have people in your life that know you, that are aware of you, that can speak to you, that can ask you really nosy questions that are off limits for most other people? Are those people there? Because that's what we're being called to, is to have these relationships where people are, are, are aware of us in ways, that, um, in ways that can be hard to cultivate. And, and I'll just tell you, those relationships are important now. Because maybe you're in one of these scenarios, maybe you're not. But it's very hard to build trust with someone who, who might be in a place of difficulty like this. Like, we, we, need to, we need to have these relationships with each other, a network of friendships like this with each other now. They're really important for us. And that's the awareness that Paul is calling to us to in this passage. 
And the more we understand the awareness, we can get a sense of what our approach for each other might look like. Paul gives us a who and a how here. Look back at verse 1. If anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. What's the who? Well, the who is you who are spiritual. Well, what does that mean, you who are spiritual? Well, Paul just went through talking about the work of the Spirit in all of our lives. If you you seek to to walk by the Spirit, if you seek to follow Jesus, then, uh, then Paul's talking about you. He's talking about a shared responsibility that we have for each other. So who, at any, at any point, one of us might be confronted with the opportunity to walk with something, someone during a time like this. I mean, from the very beginning, God has been teaching his people that if we belong to him, we belong to each other. In Genesis 4, there was a... Um, uh, God comes looking for Abel and he asks Cain, where is your brother? And what does Cain say? He responds evasively. He responds irresponsibly. And he says, am I my brother's keeper? And it's in that moment you get a picture of the darkness that's running in Cain's heart in that moment. Listen, if you are my brother or my sister, then I am yours. And if you are bearing a burden, then it's my burden too, is what the Bible is teaching us here in this passage. So that's the who. What's the how? When that moment comes, how do we go about this work? What's our approach? The passage says we restore each other in a spirit of gentleness. The gentleness guides our approach. That word restore is a Greek word that's used... Um, that's used, uh, it was a term that was used for setting a dislocated bone back into place. Uh, And if you've ever had a dislocated shoulder or dislocated hip or something like that, you know just how painful and tender a wound like that is. And who would you want to entrust yourself to during those moments? You would want to entrust yourself to somebody that you trust and somebody that will be gentle with you. And some, he's saying something similar happens to us when we're overtaken by sin. And we need to know that those people who labor lovingly with us are looking to restore us. This is gentleness. Now, I don't know if we've ever talked about this. I'm going to tell a story. And I don't know how counselors in the room are going to feel about this, but I'm going to do it anyway. I'm a fan of the show The West Wing. Uh, don't hold it against me. It's an old show. You know this because the monitors are huge and the flip phones and all that. Um, but I still love the show. I uh, still watch it occasionally. But there's a story in one episode that uh, talks about a guy that's walking down a street and falls into a hole. And the, uh, the hole is deep and the walls are steep and the guy can't get out all on his own. And so a doctor comes walking by and he cries out, hey, will you help me out? And the doctor writes a prescription and he throws it down in the hole and walks off. And then a priest comes by and, uh, and he cries out, hey, father, will you help me out? And the priest writes out a prayer and throws it down in the hole and walks off. And then a friend comes by and he says, hey, Joe, will you help me out? And the friend drops down in the hole and he says, what are you, stupid? Why did you do that? Now we're both down here. And Joe said, yeah, but I've been down in this hole before, and I know the way out. Now, the metaphor can break down if we try to over-apply it, and I don't think that's really fair to doctors or to priests, if I do say so myself, but here's what I love about that story. 
Because it is telling us that a friend draws near. A friend draws near. Let me say that again. A friend draws near. A friend does not love from a distance. A friend doesn't think that they're above you. A friend draws near and a true friend treats you and your vulnerability and your sadness and your woundedness and all the ways you might feel exposed. A true friend treats you with gentleness. Now, I don't want to presume on you, but the obligations that this places on us are real. They're worth talking about. Uh, They're worth gathering up with friends and talking about. But in a lot of ways, this is a call to courage. Because it is very hard. It is very hard to enter into each other's lives in this way, is it not? Like, it is very hard to build real relationships governed by trust. That takes time. It, ta- it, 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 uh, it takes vulnerability. It takes risk. That is really hard. We, we can become really good at building friendships with each other and even having a community that's marked by relationships that have zero obligation with each other. I think we can be really good at that. I actually think that if I may pick on my own gender, I think men are really good about that, good like that. Like we can, we can really enjoy each other But as soon as something substantial comes along, we can become like Teflon, really hard to reach. And so what this is a call to is a call to the courage to be willing to have meaningful conversation and meaningful relationships with at least some that we're able to draw near to each other. And we're able to say at at times say hard things to each other, that we're willing to sacrifice time for each other. But as much as this is a call to that kind of courage... This is a call to grace, to inhabit the grace that's been given to us, because grace is where we'll find our gentleness. Listen, grace has incredible agency for you and me, because grace, because we believe that we are nothing without grace given to us. Grace is the thing that restored our relationship to God. And, and, uh, And just as we treasure the grace that's been given to us, it becomes easier to apply that grace to each other. The more we're animated by grace, the easier it is for us to be generous with grace. And so what will this look like? Well, it looks like, it looks like praying for each other. It looks like spending time, meaningful time with each other. Uh, it, it, it looks like uh, anticipating each other's physical and spiritual needs. And sometimes it's going to look like challenging each other. But whatever it looks like, it should always represent gentleness with an eye toward restoration. Because when we treat each other with gentleness, we are applying the sweet balm of grace in each other's wounds. Remember, it was God's kindness, his gentleness. It was his patience that led us to repentance. And it's our gentleness that cooperates with the Holy Spirit in order to restore and heal each other as we wrestle with the sin in our lives. You get the impression here? He does away with the ladder and he levels the playing field in which we live out our lives. He says, we are all in this together and we help each other along led by a generous Gracious, gentle Savior. 
and we aim, what do we aim for? We aim for healing. We aim for restoration. And what happens when we live this out with each other? Well, the passage says that we bear one another's burdens and we fulfill the law of Christ. The law of Christ. The law of Christ. The law of Christ is the law of love. One of the ways we proclaim the goodness of Jesus in our lives, in our fellowship, and in our worship is by simply demonstrating the love of Jesus that's been given to us. It is a testament to how much we've been loved by how we love each other. Jesus once said the entire law could be summed up in this way, that we would love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, and mind, and what? We would love our neighbors as ourselves. And he also told his disciples once, by this they will know that you are my disciples in the way that you love each other. The law of Christ simply means modeling our lives on the example of Christ. And what does the example of Christ show us? A savior who was willing to bear the burdens of the people he loved. Jesus invited heavily burdened, heavily burdened people, didn't he? Come to me, all you who are heavy laden. Some translations say heavily burdened. And I will give you rest. For I am gentle and lowly. And when Jesus carried that cross up that hill, he was burdened by the weight of all of our guilt and all of our shame. And when Jesus died on the cross, he was burdened by a punishment that we all deserved. Isaiah put it this way, Surely he has borne our griefs, burdened with our griefs. And carried our sorrows. The Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. Listen, if we've entrusted our lives to Jesus, we've entrusted him, we've already entrusted him with a burden that we could not carry. And so every time we rally toward each other in love, bearing each other's burdens, we are proclaiming the goodness of the one who first bore our burdens. That is the natural outflow of what it looks like to follow a burden-bearing Savior. You actually get a picture of that in the early church. There's a, the, 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 uh, there's a, a beautiful little um, description of what some of the first followers of Jesus were up to in each other's lives in Acts chapter 2. So um, shortly after Jesus ascended into heaven, as word of Jesus began to spread, more and more people began to hear about Jesus and believe in him and these young communities of faith started popping up. And in that passage, what we have is this, uh, this beatific recording of what their life together looked like. It says that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of the bread and to prayers and all who believed were together. All who believed were together and had all things in common And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. It's Acts chapter 2. You see that? Neediness. Nobody's afraid of being needy. There's generosity. There's taking care of each other. What would we call that? Well, we might call it the community of the redeemed. Or radical unity manifests within the uncommon gathering of love. 
Or we might call it the natural outcome of grace born in the lives of those who love Jesus. Or for you and me, if we dare, we might just call it the church. Let me pray. Jesus, the one who gave all to take care of us, the one who has been exceedingly generous to us, oh, you who cares deeply for your people. I ask, Father, that you would convince us of your mercy and your generous grace all over again, that it would animate our hearts, and that you would build among us the relationships that you call us to. Draw us together in this beatific community that gives a light to the world of the joy of what it means to be yours. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.